Welcome to Making Sense of It All, helping you gain insight and take control of your wealth creation journey. Join your co-hosts from Vincent's, a national firm of highly specialized experts on all things financial. Jared Brooks, Director of Financial Advisory, and Brett Griffiths, Director of Superannuation Advisory. Along with special guests, they break down key concepts to help you. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Making Sense of It All. This episode, we are coming live from our home offices, BG, aren't we? That's right, Jared. We're in lockdown restrictions as we re- as we record this, I could actually yeah. speak. <laughs> so back to the good old days of the home office recordings, but uh, it's just you and myself today answering some, uh, doing a bit of a Q&A session. So we've had some listener questions come in. So today we're going to run through as many of those as we can. Yeah, so it was actually probably fortunate timing that we were going to be doing a Q&A session uh, as it turns out, Jared. So this is worked fortuitously. Yeah, very good point. Uh, it makes it a little easier when it's just the two of us working from home, but uh, hopefully the lockdown isn't extended much further. We can get back into the offices and get back to back to normal. But uh, Yeah, exactly. Uh, some really good listener questions has come in today, um, so we'll get through as many of those as we can. So I'll hand over to you. BG, do you want to kick things off? All right, let's get going, Jared. So the first question we have is, I can only save $100 a fortnight. Is there any point? Yeah. So, again, good question. Must be one of our younger listeners, um, wealth creators. Glad they're tuning in and uh, trying to get as many tips and tricks as they can from the podcast. $100 a fortnight. Now, as much as that may seem as an immaterial amount, um, given your stage of life and given that you're just kicking things off, it still counts. And I suppose the most important thing here is the fact that you've been able to identify that you're able to save $100 per fortnight and therefore you must be putting in place really good money habits uh, to capture that savings. So, and, it's also, and it's about starting good habits too, isn't it, Jared? That's so what I'm saying. So those really yeah. good habits have been put in place for you to be able to identify it and then put it aside uh, towards either savings or investments or whatever that may be. Because so, that, that $100 a fortnight now might obviously grow into the future. So uh, that's where if you sort of have that habit of saving your extra money, then hopefully in the future you'll be putting even more than $100 a fortnight aside. Exactly. So as your income grows, um, you, you maintain control of your expenses within your individual savings planner. Um, you should continue to grow what that capacity looks like and put it direct it towards wealth creation strategies. So, yeah, I think it's imperative that you start today. The next thing I'll probably mention is uh, Benjamin Franklin said it best, actually. <laughs> I was actually just about to say the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> so he says, money makes money and the money that makes money makes more money. So this is a really uh, concept of compounding interest. So the money that we are able to save generates, let's just assume it's put into cash. So it generates this interest. And eventually that interest that we reinvest back to into our savings account also then is able to generate us additional interest. So let's take it up to the next level. If we were to say we were buying shares in a company and those that company paid us a dividend and we reinvested the dividend back into buying more shares, 
well, those additional shares will create additional income for us, additional dividend payments in the future. So you get this snowball effect. And as hard as it is at the start to really get uh, gratification from the small balance that we might be saving, this does then gradually get bigger and bigger, and it's imperative that we start as soon as possible. So put it put simply um, by Benjamin Franklin, Getting started early and letting the effect of compounding interest work for you is imperative. Yeah, um, and it it does really make sense that power of um, compound interest and and how it can really, I suppose, yeah, as Benjamin Franklin said, money grows money. Yep, that's right. So yeah, start early, um, put in place good uh, savings habits, and let that money grow. Yeah. Um, all right, excellent. I think that covers that one. So let's move on to the next one. Um, we have um, a question here from Jackie. She's 27 and she's saying, I want to buy a property when the market crashes, thinking in 2023 when interest rates rise. Well, must, you must have the crystal ball out here, Jared. Yes. Um, what should I do with my money in the interim? I've got about $50,000. All right. So few different aspects uh, for here that probably is more than just a simple question. Uh, things such as, well, what is this property purchase? Is it a home, as in a principal place of residence, or is it an investment? Uh, what deposit do you require in terms of, well, what is the purchase price of that asset that you're looking to buy? So th there's a few other elements here that I'd really need to dive into with Jackie um, for getting clarity on what is the best scenario and strategy for her. Um, but that, those questions are imperative because at the end of the day, if it's a principal place of residence and there's a certain stage of your life and you're trying to get into the property market as soon as you can, um, well, should we be worrying about the impending uh, property market crash? Then I suppose as you note there, Brett, the crystal ball strategy, um, you're then trying to predict uh, a potential, potential property crash. Now, no one has that crystal ball. We don't know whether the undersupply of properties uh, might drive growth um, and lower interest rates over the next few years might continue to drive growth in the property space. So it becomes harder to then predict when any potential crash, um, if any, would occur. So you might find yourself sitting on the sidelines and that property that you were looking to buy in three to four years' time may still be uh, or may be uh, a greater value than it is today. So it might be worthwhile sitting on the sidelines. Yeah, in fact, I was um, watching the ABC News last night and they have um, Alan Kohler, who does their economic business updates, talking about property prices and how they've risen, I think, on average 13.6% uh, in Brisbane uh, in the last 12 months. And uh, he said the last time that there's been such an increase as that was back in 2001 when interest rates were um, were dramatically cut. So yeah. clearly there's a correlation between interest rates and house pricing, which you know, obviously we, we, we realise that. Um, so a lot of it will come back to when interest rates do rise. Yeah, so we have gone through a 25-plus year property boom, and that has been fueled by falling interest rates and an undersupply. So we've had both um, migration from international and then just our uh, population growth over this period. So we have seen 
an undersupply of property, which has also driven the, the growth of the markets. Um, but saying that, we are seeing longer dated interest rates uh, starting to increase. So if I look out to uh, a four or five year horizon on fixed interest rates from the banks, uh, we have seen those interest rates tick up. So potentially, uh, we may be seeing um, longer dated interest rates go higher and the, the bottoms that we saw of those one point something percent interest rates for your home loan uh, may be a thing of the past. <clears throat> so yes, uh, an interest rate increase could potentially drive some volatility in, in the prices of property, uh, but how or when that actually takes place and how long you sit on the sidelines um, could result in you having to pay up anyway in the future uh, if the growth of the property markets is to continue. Yeah, yeah. But uh, in regards to what to do with the 50000 uh, this comes back to your investment horizon. So if this was to be a principal place of residence and you had a two- to three-year timeline of when you actually wanted to purchase this property, you can't put that money at risk. You need to know that in the event that you found the perfect property, you need to have certainty around the capital that you can access to put down a deposit to execute on that purchase. So you can't be putting that money into higher uh, risk or higher volatile uh, growth associated assets such as shares if we have a shorter dated investment horizon. So as tough as that may be, putting your money to cash uh, in the low interest rate environment is pretty brutal, but it's really the only safe place for you to put money to provide you with that certainty around capital for deposit. So uh, you're, suggesting, you're suggesting that cryptocurrency might not be the best option, Jared? Well, no. <laughs> simply no. Cryptocurrency is not the best option. Um, You've you got to really be, be very careful with your investments of money that has a shorter-term uh, reallocation. So you know full well you need this money within the next couple of years. Um, it's important that you have, have it in the safest uh, place as possible. Yeah, it's all about preservation of capital essentially, isn't it? Exactly. Um, yeah. This could be a completely different scenario if they turn around and said uh, it was an investment decision and the timeline on this purchase really wasn't a huge concern. If they said, oh, if it's not in the next couple of years, it might be in five, seven years' time, when we want to take an opportunity to invest into an investment property, um, when the timing is right, i.e. when demand is probably starting to ease and oversupply creeps in and the property market stabilises, then potentially we could look at putting it into other growth assets at this point in time and only uh, looking at that transition when the timing is right. But again, if we have a clearly defined time on when we want to purchase this and even more so if it's for a principal place of residence and somewhere we want to live, uh, we've got to have certainty. But I suppose, Jared, that's where it becomes really hard because um, you know, Jackie's got the view that um, – 2023 is going to be the year to do the transaction, no, to, to buy the property. However, if, as you said before, if property prices keep rising, then that time horizon could get pushed out further and further. So it could be that you're missing out on opportunity because, or you know, growth opportunity in your, well, in your holding pattern until you actually transact on the property. Yeah, which is probably a good lead into that next uh, question that we've got. 
Um, so if you want to read that one, that might uh, then follow, flow through to what my next response would be. Oh, okay, am I getting ahead of myself here, Jared? No, 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 um, it's just that it leads quite well into the next question that we've got. All right, all right. So this one's from Edward. Um, he says, um, I'm about $20,000 away from my 20% home deposit. Um, is there any value in waiting till uh, I have it all and preventing me from getting LMI, so um, um, that's mortgage insurance, or should I just go for the extra extra borrowings? Okay, so linking these two questions of where you were leading before, it's your ability to outsave the rate of growth that the property market has. So if you can save faster than that property you're looking at is growing in the current market conditions, then that's great because it means that you might be able to get that deposit you need and then execute on that property purchase. If not, and your savings aren't aligned with the rate of growth of the property market, the current conditions, and you really want to get into the property market for your principal place of residence, then it might be worth executing and finding a way to execute on that property purchase today because in two to three years time given that we don't have that crystal ball two to three years time if that property price has continued to grow at the current rates um you you're not in a better position than you would have been just acting on that today yeah yeah that's the way i look at it yeah which makes sense and yeah the reality is and i suppose but this is where that um Going back to Jackie's question, where she thinks that the property market's going to crash, so does that mean that potentially you're overpaying for the property in her view in the near term? Yep. And again, which is why I want to ask a few more questions of Jackie, because at the end of the day, um, if this is an investment decision, it is a completely different strategy I would take versus a principal place of residence. Somewhere I want, I want a home. Um, it's normally a life transition. You might be starting a family. You might be moving in, providing more certainty around your living arrangements. So at the end of the day, if it was a principal place of residence, I'd say, okay, well, maybe it, it, you should just be looking to enter the market if you have that ability because um, it's a lifestyle asset. And therefore, it doesn't matter whether the, the property market was to correct in two or three years' time because you still need somewhere to live. Okay, so at the end of the day, most likely, uh, we, if we look at Australian property market as a whole, then all property prices might have either stagnated in growth or come back a little bit. Uh, but it doesn't matter because you needed somewhere to live anyway. You wouldn't have sold out of that asset or um, looked to rent for a period of time just to try and time the market here. Whereas an investment asset is completely different. You do need your entry price to be good to take advantage of those longer-term capital growth opportunities that property can provide. So two different, two very different scenarios. One normally has a, a more uh, clearly defined timeline of entry, whereas the investment, uh, you're a little more flexible because it's not a lifestyle choice. So that's really important. And then probably I will flick back to Jamie's question, is the asset uh, class itself. So property, when we speak very generally, um, has obviously had some really strong growth. But if you actually start to dive into the asset class itself and divide property into apartments or homes and into inner city versus regional and all these other aspects you can actually drive into location, 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 um, there's different drivers of what uh, the growth has been for these different properties. So you might see inner city apartments really haven't seen the same sort of growth. So if Jackie was looking to get into that market, um, today might have been a great time. So again, yeah. more questions need to be raised. 
Yeah, and I think the um, the episode that we recorded with um, Josh from um, Bywise Property um, really highlighted the differences there in, in that sort of functional use of the of the property yeah. um, and, and the opportunities that it that it has still to grow or, or not. Yeah, correct. So back to lenders mortgage insurance and the the twenty percent twenty thousand dollars away from getting the deposit. Um, lenders mortgage insurance. So we'll redefine it. So it, this is a one off. Uh, it's non refundable premium that is added to your home loan. So they add that uh, on top of your borrowing when you come to uh, take out your loan. Now, this isn't to protect you as the borrower. It's actually to protect the bank. And it's in the event the bank wants to cover its risk that should you not be able to make repayments on your home loan and they then look to probably sell your, your, your home, they can try and recoup some of the losses that may be incurred. So the, it's recapitalized into the loan. Um, and something at the very start when you agree on the contract. Uh, for more information on that one, probably flick back to the episode with Phil. So we did some mortgage strategy series with Phil Ringway from our Vincent Spending Solutions. I flick back to that and get some more information on the actual LMI. But my big one with this is don't be concerned about taking uh, lender's mortgage insurance in the event that this is a timeline, timing issue. You want into the property market now, if that's the case, then don't be concerned about uh, utilising lenders' mortgage insurance if it helps you facilitate that transaction today of, i.e., buying a principal place of residence. No, I, must admit, I must admit, Jerry, given that the, the size of a property purchase, the costs that are involved in it in its totality, I find it really interesting how people are hesitant to take out mortgage insurance. Lenders mortgage insurance, um, and even to the point where in the last budget they announced um, provisions that the government will will help um, cover that risk for the banks, so people could take out insurance without having LMI. So I, I, I won't say I struggle with it, but it's an interesting perception that people must have around it. Yeah, I think it comes back to making sure you're not overstretching yourself when it comes to how much debt you're taking on. Um, if you've had good money habits in place where you've been able to save this deposit over a number of years and you have reviewed your cash flow position, you understand what life transitions you're about to go through and you have certainly around cash flow, um, that's where I'm saying uh, don't be hesitant to take out uh, lenders' mortgage insurance because um, at the end of the day, you've got, you've, you're forward projecting. Um, that means you'll be able to stop paying rent. You'll start growing equity in a home and all these other advantages that come with actually executing on that property purchase today. So they're all good. Um, but remember, it, it will, because it is recap, it's capitalized into your loan, uh, it results in additional interest repayments. So there is uh, additional money that will have to be paid on the back of you utilizing uh, lender's mortgage insurance. Yep, yep, true. All right, so the next one here must be from one of our um, younger uh, listeners. Um, so Caitlin has asked, I've been watching a lot of TikToks recently. I know you're all over TikTok, Jared. I was going to say, um, do you even know what TikToks are? <laughs> yeah, my kids show me. Um, <laughs> uh, and they're talking about index funds. What are they and how can I use them in my financial strategy? Um, is that any different to buying stocks directly? Yeah, cracking question. And index funds or and also exchange-traded funds, I'll put that out on the side there as well, is getting a lot more headlines um, because it's getting easier for people to access them. 
so an index fund is a portfolio of stocks. So we're talking about shares, and it can also be things such as bonds. So it's a portfolio of these stocks or bonds, and its purpose is to mimic the risk and return and the underlying performance of a financial market index. So take, for example, the ASX 200. So our stock market here in Australia, the top 200 companies. So you can get an index fund which will match both the capital growth and the income characteristics of that market. Okay, and that index market. So as a result, these are regarded as passive investment strategies. So there's no drive for outperformance. You are going to replicate the performance of the index that you are buying into. So a couple of the big advantages is because they're passive um, compared to actively managed funds, then there's they're lower cost. Most times they should be lower cost. And they also provide you with great levels of diversification. So for people who are looking to just start out with investing, uh, they're really good to get your foot in the game because you can buy into, through a single transaction, you can buy into these exchange-traded funds, indexed funds, such as the ASX 200, gives you exposure to the top 200 companies here in Australia, and all you have to do is execute on that one transaction. So really good from a diversification perspective, low cost, um, and really drops that barrier for entry. And therefore, comparing to buying stocks, you don't have to be conscious of what you think is the next best business in the market. This this process of rebalancing within the ASX 200 will result in new companies coming into the top 200 and companies that are in the bottom falling out. So there's this rebalancing that takes effect. So hence why there is a small management fee uh, for the fund manager to uh, facilitate that. So, yeah, it essentially spreads the risk, Jared. That's what you're really saying, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So diversification, low cost. And then I, I think personally one of the biggest advantages is the fact that these exchange-traded fund indexes uh, are becoming so popular that um, we're now getting exposure or the ability to gain exposure to much a broader range of investments. So, for example, um, you might want exposure to Asia or the US or a particular sector such as the NASDAQ over in the US. There's exchange-traded funds and index funds that replicate some of these markets overseas. And it, it, it's not really um, within our education or ability to look outside the scope into international markets sometimes as uh, young professionals starting an investment journey we have a focus on Australia. So for diversification purposes, we can look to these exchange-traded funds and index funds outside of Australia to give us exposure such as Asia. These things carry like Alibaba, Tencent, Samsung. Um, you might go into the NASDAQ, which is, has Amazon, Netflix, Apple, Facebook. These kind of businesses, rather than buying them directly, you can get a, a full suite of uh, these companies and exposure to these companies through the one index. So significant advantages there over picking individual stocks. Yeah, and and I suppose as you said, it really spreads that um, diversification or spreads the risk around not being diversified by having everything in one company. So yeah, that, so that makes a lot of sense. And that's where it might come back to: it's not one versus the other strategy when it comes to index funds versus buying direct. Uh, I think it's they're a great tool for actually building out a full portfolio. So you might have the ability to uh, do your research, 
uh, and track and, and review the underlying investors here in Australia and therefore build a, another core component of your portfolio outside of that through these ETFs in other countries and other sectors of the market that you just can't get the same level of information on to do your research. Or it could even be, Jared, that you start with the ETFs and and the lot or index funds, and then move into more direct equities as you have a larger portfolio to to play with. Absolutely, exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, all right. So next question. Um, this one's from Caitlin. My parents are always telling me that rent money is dead money. You know, we've all heard that one. Um, and she said that one of her friends has mentioned this term about rent vesting. Can you explain what that is and how do I get started? I'd actually like to understand what that is. All right. So my first pet peeve is rent money's dead money. So at the end of the day, renting gives you great levels of flexibility. Okay, in the world of COVID, many of us may not be thinking about going internationally, but if we were renting, it gives us the ability to, say, pull up stumps in Brisbane, move to a new career shift in Melbourne or Sydney, or even go internationally. If you're to set your foundations, buy a home here in Australia, uh, then it's sort of you got ties to it. It can create complexity in, well, do I need to sell this? Does it become an investment? Do I want to manage people in an investment property whilst I'm traveling overseas and doing things? So there's a, a significant amount of benefits in actually renting when we're sort of just setting foundations of our overall careers and our life. So that's number one. Um, number two is it's only dead money in the event that you're not capturing the additional, uh, let's say, savings that you would have been putting towards an, a, a principal place of residence or the home loan repayments on a principal place of residence. So at the end of the day, if you are able to capture that money and put it to work in other growth assets, then I don't see rent rent vesting, I mean, I don't see renting as being dead money. So that would be my first thing. Now, the concept of rent vesting is where you own a home but that home isn't located in an area where you want to live from a lifestyle perspective. Oh, okay. So what you'll be doing is you'll be renting where you would like to live and provide you the lifestyle that you would like, and you're then investing into the property market in a location that has great growth potential um, for you longer term. So you have an investment strategy with your property purchase because you want exposure to the property market, but then you utilize um, renting as you know, in an area that you see fit to suit your lifestyle at where you're at right now. Yeah, does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, I have I have heard that concept before. Um, yeah. I just haven't heard it called rent vesting. Yeah, so basically, get your foot in the door in the property market to live where you want to. So that's yeah. the benefits of rent vesting. Because uh, okay. at the end of the day, property is a great asset class for capital growth and building out our wealth creation strategies. Um, so some pros of that: you get to live where you want. Um, there's obviously lower costs uh, at you renting a home, so going out and actually living somewhere else and having someone else pay your mortgage, so having tenants in there. Um, you also have some significant tax benefits. So the income generated from that asset uh, is accessible income to you. It can help cover the costs. But then also the borrowings or the interest expense associated with that investment property uh, can potentially provide a tax benefit for you as well. So you might be able to offset that against accessible income. And then thirdly is obviously the capital gains perspective. Um, you're buying into this as an investment property and therefore your focus here is on 
generating capital growth over the longer term. So there's some significant benefits on renting where you want to live and then having an investment property. Downsides, though, of course. Some people do like the certainty of having their principal residence where they can do renovations. They don't have to worry about people coming in and doing property inspections. You don't have to worry about the actual owners of the property kicking you out um, because they're going to sell it or whatever it may be. So there's this level of stability that obviously does come with home ownership and owning and living in your principal place of residence, which you uh, have purchased yourself. Yeah, and uh, and also I think there's something within the Australian culture that um, you know, home ownership is is important for you know whatever reason. It um, doesn't seem as prevalent over in Europe, for argument's sake, but here it, it does seem to be part of our DNA almost. Yeah, and as for all these questions, it, it, it comes down to, obviously we can't provide personal advice, but it does come down to your individual circumstances. Where are you at in your life stage and what suits you best? So that's what's the most important factor and not considering whether rent money is dead money, just making sure that it suits your lifestyle where you're at now and you're capturing surplus savings and putting it towards growth. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, the next question, Jared, I reckon I could answer in two words, so we'll see how you go. <laughs> um, so um, this question is, um, don't know who it's from, but they've said there's so much information out there and so many things related to finance uh, that I should know, you know, insurance, investment, super, and the like. Um, it's a massive overload of information. I'm wondering where I should start. Yeah. Well, I, 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 so my two words, seek advice. <laughs> yeah, I thought you were going to say it was uh, making sense of it all. <laughs> I think, think they're off to a great start. So you're clearly educating yourself. You're on uh, these podcasts and you're listening and gathering as much information as you possibly can. So there's really good YouTubes, blogs, podcasts out there. Um, I suppose the biggest and most important factor here is making sure it's coming from a credible source. Um, it's a bit of a, a peeve of mine is seeing a lot of these uh, cryptocurrency trading platforms and day trading platforms, and it, it, it isn't around long-term wealth creation for people. So make sure you're listening to people who are qualified, educated, and have uh, good, um, reputable life experience that you're absorbing this information from. So I think that's the biggest part for me. Um, go back to our first few episodes. So the way we kicked off making sense of it all was really setting the foundations of all things wealth creation. So we started with money management, debt management, wealth protection, estate planning, and then rolled into investment strategies. Go back to 101. Look at those foundational elements. Um, the most important thing here is getting control of your, your money management and then building on that. So I know there is a lot of information out there and that's why we created this podcast is to try and cut through the noise and really give you the basics to put you on your journey to wealth creation and ultimately financial independence. So please go back to those first few episodes, make sure you have a listen and go from there. And I'd also want to say, remember that financial advice is not for just those people that have created wealth already. Go out and speak to a financial advisor, and they should be able to add value to your position no matter what life stage you're at. 
wherever you're at on your journey, they should be able to go, okay, well, here's a plan for a fixed fee. I can write you a plan. Whether you have an ongoing relationship or not is completely up to you. But they should be able to add value to your current position as you are where you are at today. And there should be clarity around a fixed fee structure and you should be able to move forward from there. So don't look at financial advice if only for those who have already created wealth. Yeah, and finding a financial advisor, it's a really personal thing. So you've got to feel comfortable with them um, and essentially the, the type of advice that they give. You know, there are, unfortunately, there are still a lot of um, advisors out there that are more interested in, I'll say, themselves than anything else. Um, but finding someone that you're comfortable with, I think, is a really important thing. Yeah. All right, we've got time for one more question, BG. All right, All right last Just one. squeeze it in. And it's, but it's a big one though, Jared, so we'll see how we go. Um, so obviously the, this, this person's a, an avid listener and they've said in your money management episode, you described how uh, to pay yourself, sorry, described how you should pay yourself um, by, with your spending cash. So you remember how you were saying you should put your spending money aside in a separate bank account so you're paying yourself. Um, and the rest go into separate accounts. Yep. Um, how do I do this when I use my credit card and, and you know, touch pay on my phone all the time? Uh, and how does this work with the concept of an offset account that you mentioned recently as my bank only offers one, uh, one offset account? Okay. So, again, can't provide personal advice, um, but if we go back to the foundations of money management, we did have that segregation of our spending. So we had the living expenses. So that was our non-discretionary fixed cost of us to get by. So our income comes into there. On day one, we always paid ourselves first. So that went into a savings bucket mm-hmm. and savings account. And the second was our lifestyle spending. So based on our savings planner, we put money aside for that discretionary element of our overall expenses. So when it comes to a credit card, um, my uh, my personal perspective is you normally use that for those fixed uh, non-discretionary costs, so the living expenses within our budget, because that's where we can we can put money aside into our living expenses bucket and then pay off that credit card on a monthly basis to make sure we never have um, outstanding interest costs building up on that credit card. When it comes to the discretionary stuff, the, the lifestyle, there's, there's not a lot of money that's probably put in there. We've got an allocated amount. We need to have the direct feedback of reviewing our banking structure to see how much we've got available to spend. So it's really important that that's cash, cash in the bank. So I'd have a credit card um, towards those fixed costs and the more tap money is on a, a dedicated card for your lifestyle expenses. Now, when it comes to an offset account, if you've only got the ability to have one offset account, well, potentially you need to consider where the greatest amount of uh, cash that you will have will fall. And most of us, it'll be within our savings bucket. So the savings bucket might end up being our only offset account. Um, if you were having a chat uh, and reviewing your overall mortgage strategy, you might speak with your uh, investment savvy mortgage broker and see what ability you have to uh, change that. Um, in the future to offset various uh, accounts, but it's probably worthwhile making sure that that is associated with wherever your largest pool of cash would be. And for most of us, that would probably sit with our savings bucket. Yeah, right. Okay. Okay. So it's a a bit of a tough one because at the end of the day, 
everyone's banking structure is going to, going to be different. We can only work off a foundational element of that, of having the, the three separate um, bank account system. Uh, and ultimately, the benefits of using a credit card for those that do have a home loan um, is that you can leave money in a potential offset account facility, offsetting interest. And then when it comes to uh, needing to repay your credit card on a monthly basis, where well, you can extract the money out of offset and pay down your credit card. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, you need to review a system or put in place a system that works for you best uh, because we all have different spending habits. If you're needing to go back and uh, you're not paying off your credit card in full, well, then I'd be reviewing your savings planner and making sure you have your allocation of cash flow across your banking system uh, is correct. Yeah, and, and making and I suppose Jared, your point there about it being a system, and for most people, that system needs to be pretty easy, straightforward, uh, and uh, I'll, I'll say low touch because otherwise, yeah, things, will, things will fall in the cracks. That's right. So we spoke about segregation and automation. So segregating your bank accounts and automating the transfers that happen between them. And the final bit is that feedback loop. It doesn't need anyone else involved. It just needs you to have an appropriate system that you can log into your bank accounts and see how much do I have within my lifestyle spending to go out there and have the, uh, and utilize money on discretionary items. Yeah. Cool. All right, Jared. Well, we better pull up stumps there, mate. Another absolutely cracking episode. I, I look forward to answering more listener questions in the future because um, it obviously we can speak directly to the, the burning uh, questions on people's minds. So I, do, I love doing Q&A. Yeah, it is, it is good. Maybe I'll get some questions next time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there'll be super questions going up because uh, with the changes in the, the 10%, um, I think people are reviewing their superannuation, so we might try and find some super questions in there for next time for you. Yeah, we'll see what happens, see what happens. <laughs> All right. Well, um, make sure that you leave us a review uh, and shoot through any more questions you have too. Making sense of it all at vincents.com.au. All right then. Until next time, remember to gain insight and take control. Thanks, Jared. Thanks, mate. Bye. Bye. The information contained in this podcast should not be interpreted as advice. It is general in nature and does not take into account your individual financial situation or needs and should not be relied upon. Before making any investment, insurance, tax, property or financial decision, we recommend you consult with a licensed professional advisor to consider your unique circumstances. Guests appearing on this podcast may have a commercial